Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi, everyone. Today, we are speaking with award-winning journalist, speaker, and author Celeste Headley to share insights from her national bestseller, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. In this read, Celeste helps us break free of our unhealthy obsession with busyness and efficiency so that we can reclaim our time, reduce feelings of anxiety and guilt, and make room for more leisure. Celeste experienced burnout firsthand, and in our discussion today, she shares the experiences that led her to overwork herself and the lessons that helped her change her unhealthy patterns. You'll learn that we do not need to sabotage our well-being to achieve our goals. Celeste argues that achieving success is not about working harder, it's about working smarter, and she shares examples of how making space for leisure will help us live and perform better. Celeste explains that we should focus internally to find solutions to our stresses, and she shares how to reverse the behaviors that are making us all sicker, sadder, and less productive. Together, we discuss how making more money does not necessarily equal more freedom, how to set boundaries with your time, why it's important to say no and put your well-being first, and how we can use our technologies with greater intention and more. Be inspired to reject the idea that you should constantly be doing and start embracing a happier and healthier lifestyle that allows you to thrive. Well, thank you for connecting with us today. We absolutely loved your book. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Lauren was the first to read your book, Do Nothing. And when she told me the title, I said, wow, I have to read this and or we need to read this because we have both personally overworked ourselves. So when we saw the title, we're like, okay, this is a need. This is an important message. And so we're very, very excited to share it with our community today. And you may know that Lauren and I, we help people remove the excess from the lives and we help them live with greater intention once they've removed the clutter. And admittedly, Lauren and I, we also found ourselves actually filling in that time back with overworking ourselves. And we almost feel this guilt when we're not working. And it's something that Lauren and I have to continually manage <laughs> every single day and even hopping on a call with each other to remind ourselves to do nothing and it's you shouldn't feel guilty and it will actually make you more productive but anyways we'll get into that so we're excited to get into everything today me too i mean i gotta say uh, millennials are among the biggest purchasers of the book uh which i think is encouraging (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a good sign that maybe uh that generation is realizing how toxic these habits i'm in i'm gen x so um maybe the younger generation is beginning to recognize the toxicity of it so oh absolutely like it (laughs) Yeah. yeah And thank you for sharing this message because it's, again, it's super important. We need to hear it. So to get started, you are an award-winning journalist. You have appeared on NPR, CNN, BBC, and other international networks. And today you're an active speaker, podcaster, and the author of a few books, including your national bestseller, Do Nothing, which we are very excited to speak with you today about. Now, to start our conversation off, can you share your experiences with overwork and how your search for external solutions were leaving you stuck? Yeah, I mean, I I was an overworker as far back as I can remember. Um, uh, And so I, you know, I I absolutely bought into that idea that 
if you want to be successful, you have to work for it. And that the people who work the hardest will be the most successful, that you'll get rewarded, which is all bunk, by the way. But whenever I had an issue, whether it was financial, whether it was, uh, you know, where I wasn't uh, supported at my work, where I wasn't getting the promotions I wanted, I thought the solution was to work harder, to pick up a side gig, to do something else. And so, you know, at the point when I started to get speaking gigs, this is after my TEDx talk went viral, I was just adding those speeches onto my workload that I had already. And I was a single mother at the time still. (laughs) So I was just adding that in, that just became a side hustle. And then when that became completely unsustainable, I was like, okay, the solution is I'm gonna be self-employed. Like I'll just start my own business, you know, and I'll be self-employed and then I'll have complete control over my own schedule and this will all be solved. Uh, that was BS. Yeah. <laughs> because I just got busier. When you're your own boss, it gets worse. Um, and so that's the, that's at the point when I started getting sick a lot and I'm an extremely healthy person. That's when I knew. And I was irritable. I was not going to friends' birthday parties because I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to work. I was turning down things that I would normally think of as fun. I, I was thinking that I didn't have time to meditate, right? Like, there's this old Buddhist saying that if you if you don't have half an hour to meditate, meditate for 15 minutes. If you don't have 15 minutes, then meditate for a half an hour. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of where I was. And that's when I started to realize, okay, something's wrong and I need to figure it out what it is. I know this is a long answer, but just one last thing is that partly because our sexist society has built me up to think this, I immediately thought it was something in me. I immediately thought there was something I was doing wrong that I had to fix myself, right? Like that's why women don't get ahead in business. That's why we're not paid the same, right? Because we're bad negotiators or we're whatever. Um, I've been programmed to think it's a self, it's a failing of myself. And it, as the research went forward, it turned out to be completely not true. Yeah. There's this idea that as women, we should be able to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> And, and one of the quotes I love by Joshua Fields Milburn, who's part of the minimalists, he always says we can do everything, but we can't do everything. So we can't do it all. Yes, absolutely true. And why would you want to? Exactly. Um, I absolutely loved your book and it started off. This is what like drew me in so much to it was you, you stood in the first chapter, you talk about the hedonic treadmill and how we're like constantly chasing after these new things, thinking when I just get here, I'll be happy. When I just get here, I'll be happy. And yet no matter how much we achieve in life, we kind of always fall back to this baseline level of happiness. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I thought it was so interesting. Yeah. It's a coping mechanism because what it's designed to do is help you cope with tragedy and catastrophe so that even if the worst thing happens the sedonic treadmill will return you to that baseline where you know this isn't going to affect the rest of your life it's like uh, when something awful happens your brain immediately begins to smear vaseline on that lens because remembering how bad it was to break your leg would disable you for the rest of your life right emotionally you can't remember that pain so it's it's a coping mechanism in one way but the thing is it also functions in happiness so you're like i can't wait till i get that promotion everything's going to be easier and you actually think through all the scenarios that are going to be easier how much easier it's going to be you're you're imagining all these things that are going to be better when you get the promotion and maybe for a week or two you do feel happier but a couple of weeks later you will be right back to that baseline of happiness that where you were before and this is the thing is like people will read these articles that are like the seven things 
the happy people do. And that's not how it works. You can adjust that baseline, but it takes time. It takes like really serious monumental changes in the way you live your life every day. It's not going to happen because you got a raise or lost five more pounds. Yeah, exactly. And I love how you were thinking, okay, well, my goal is to make more money. And when I make more money, then I won't be as stressed. And like, this is the solution. And you said, quote, the more money you make, the more likely you will believe that you have no time to waste. And I think a lot of us can relate with that. (laughs) In the first two weeks, you're like, oh yeah, more money, more freedom. Actually, no, you'll be making more and then you'll want to make more and then you'll want to keep doing more. And it seemed like even when, after you went freelance, when you thought, oh, well, I can manage my own time now, you were still overworking yourself. And so when did you come to this realization that this is just a continual habit loop that I need to change? Yeah. I mean, I, what happened was I, I looked back at my calendar when I, when I started trying to figure out what was going wrong in my life, (laughs) how did I get here? I looked back at my calendar for the next six months and I realized I was traveling. I was doing at least one speech a week, traveling, flying every few days. And then I thought, why am I doing that? And I realized it's because every time I turned, like I would turn down a speech and they'd say, okay, if you don't want to do it for 25, would you do it for 35,000? And at some point you're like, I can't, how am I, (laughs) how do I turn down that much money for this speech? Especially when I have employees, some of whom are on commission and they only make money if I go and do a speech. And it just becomes this treadmill, you know, it all starts with this concept that was born in the industrial revolution that time is money and when time is money when there's an actual dollar value on your time then the more money you make per hour the more expensive it is for you to not be working and that sinks into your subconscious somewhere in our subconscious wiring we know how much we're making and you know one really phenomenal study that that showed this very clearly was the one where they had people sit down and listen to this gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music from, from Lakme. It's called the flower duet, extremely short. It's like maybe two minutes, 10 seconds long. Um, and half of the study participants, they just had them listen to this piece of music and they would came away from it saying, yeah, that was lovely. It was just a nice little beautiful piece. But the other half in the questionnaire before they listened, they asked them how much they made per hour calculate your hourly rate. And those people felt like the music went on too long. Mm. Wow. They're like, this is, this is too long. I'm impatient to get going, blah, 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 blah. Just by being prompted even to think about making money per hour, they couldn't sit for two minutes and 10 seconds and listen to some beautiful music. Yeah. I mean, I believe that I can relate to that feeling. And, you know, it's something that there were so many incredible takeaways in your book that made me think, Yeah, it's actually okay to step back and reject this idea. You said that our society has been impacted by a virus called the fast life. And I was like, yes, it has. And, you know, we, you said that we judge our days by how efficient they are rather than how fulfilling. I was like, wow, that is so true. When someone asks you, how was your day? Oh, I got this done. I got this done. I got this done. But what happened in your day that was super fulfilling? What, you know, even the person on the other end doesn't expect that as a response. So what advice would you give our listeners to help them reject the fast life and also avoid feelings of guilt? 
So, you know, one of the most important things to do is to stop focusing on these means goals, right? The, all these little tiny things that you put in your bullet journal that you want to get done, those are important. Absolutely, you need to change the battery and the smoke detector, but that's a means goal right? That's a means to an end that the purpose of changing that battery is to keep you safe in case of a fire. What's your life goal? Like at the end of your life, what is it that you want to have accomplished? Those end goals are big and vast and they are not measurable. You know, people keep giving us advice on how to set goals and they're like, make it achievable, make it measurable. I don't want you to, to do that. I want you to come up with goal, the real goals, the ones that you you want to last your lifetime. And if that's what you're measuring over the course of the day, did I get a little closer to that goal or not? Like one of my end goals is to to make the world a slightly better place, right? I, that's really important to me. And if I get to the end of the day and somebody asks me how my day is, I have to ask myself, did I make the world a slightly better place today <laughs> or maybe your one of your end goals is to be happy in life and so you can ask yourself did i was i how many times was i happy today how many times was i joyful how many times did i inspire joy in somebody else and if that's how you're measuring your days not in the number of tasks you got uh, completed not how well you ticked the boxes in that checkbox but in how much closer you got to your big, broad, you know, inspiring goals, it completely changes the perspective of success. Mm, I'm really feeling this. This is so, this is super inspiring. It's so yeah, true. Is- I mean, even in this it, it, earlier this morning, I was running on the treadmill. And in that moment, I was actually thinking about everything I want to accomplish in the day. I was just kept thinking about the future. It was giving me anxiety. And I was thinking to myself, no, just be present. This is your first accomplishment of the day and just enjoy this moment. And, you know, now I'm realizing, oh, I should talk about it later. If someone asked me how my day was, it started off great because I went for a run, you know? <laughs> and even change your perspective. I don't, I wouldn't even call it an accomplishment. Like what's the purpose of the treadmill? Mm-hmm. Why do you do it? Right. Mm-hmm. It's so you can be happy and, and healthy, right? It's so you can be healthy. But why? Why do you need a healthy body? Right? If you keep asking yourself those whys, why do you need a healthy body? Well, so I can do whatever it is that you like to do. Maybe you like to do sports. Maybe you'd like to take dog walks with your dog. So I can do these particular things. Okay, why? Why do you want those particular things? If you keep asking yourself why, you will get to your end goal. And maybe your end goal is to have experienced life in as many ways as possible. And in that particular case, in that perspective, that treadmill is not, an, getting your treadmill is not an accomplishment. That, that's the journey itself. Mm-hmm. Like that's you experiencing those endorphins. Mm-hmm. Like I try to imagine, can I, Am I listening to my body enough to I know the point when the endorphins kick in? Can I be that present with my body that I know at the moment when my my body clicks over and it starts enjoying the movement rather than me just going, oh, God, I got to get on my damn elliptical. I have an elliptical instead. So like that, I, I wouldn't see the exercise and accomplishment because if you see it that way, it's going to become a box in your checklist. Totally. You're making me realize it, it's 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 being rather than doing, as you would say in your book. Yes, absolutely. Be in that treadmill because moving your body 
feels good once you start it. I mean, it's hard to get on the treadmill. It's hard to get into your workout clothes. That whole prep for it is hard, getting yourself there. But once you're there, like that's the purpose. Like there you are, you're doing the thing. Like you're being that person that moves their body and feels the endorphins and lifts their spirits. Like, yeah. No, I'm relating so much to this. I feel like I used to be such a calculated person and just had to like run off my to-do list every single day. And now I'm so much more like, what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to spend your day? Even talking about exercise, I was always like, this is the recommended amount of exercise people should do every day. And this is what get, but now I'm like, what do you want to do though? Like, don't you want to go for a walk or do this and enjoy it in the moment and enjoy your work? And I feel like I'll, I'll talk to other people and they're like, oh, I have a long day or I have a stressful day. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm so lucky. Like I get to podcast and I like met with my writing coach this morning. I'm like, I have such a great day lined up. So like, if you can structure your life like that, it you go so much further and you're so much happier. One of the biggest things I took away from your book, which I always think about when I'm working now is multitasking. And I would always try to do it to the point where I sell real estate by profession. And when I'm making my phone calls while the phone was ringing, I would try to do other stuff because I was bored (laughs) while the phone was ringing. And I read in your book that it actually kills gray matter in your brain. So if you can talk about that, this was probably my biggest takeaway of how I'm like permanently damaging my brain by multitasking. I mean, I used to be so part of the cult of multitasking that I would put it on my resume under special skills. Like I considered to myself (laughs) to be just the master multitasker. So it was upsetting to me to realize I have probably shrunk my gray matter uh, through trying to multitask. We think that multitasking saves us time. We think that doing something else while you're waiting for the phone to ring, we're like, oh, we're getting two things done at once. But that, that just that doesn't pass the smell test. When we actually test this to see if people who are trying to do this are getting two things done at once, they're not, they're actually going more slowly. Why? Because you're doing both things badly. Um, now, waiting while you're ringing on the phone, the reason that doesn't work is because it's not long enough of a time for you to focus mm. on something else. That's one of the biggest things. If you are doing something that's relatively mindless, like folding your clothes, then you're okay you know, you're fine. I listen to podcasts while I'm gardening. Totally okay. But pretty much anything else, you're a you're wasting time because the work you're doing is full of errors. It's not nearly as innovative as creative. But even worse for me as like a creative person, and frankly, real estate is a creative industry. um, You are never reaching deep focus. You're never reaching that point where you can actually tap into the most creative parts of your mind. And and then what's the point, right? Then that your job could be done by literally anybody else if, it, if you're just going by rote and, and making errors all the time. In order for you to be you at your best, you need to tap into that deepest part of your brain, the, the inner workings of your brain where the outer folds of your brain have a chance to weigh in the executive function, the analytical parts of your brain, the part of your brain that brings all the experience and insight to bear. And for that to happen, you have to allow your brain to focus and human beings can't focus on more than one thing at once. Pigeons can. Pigeons can multitask. (laughs) Human beings can't. Yeah. It makes me think of how 
I think there is a part also in your book where you talk about how when we do multitask, especially at work, it will actually carry on to the rest of our day, even in our personal life. And then we're not present with the people around us because we're, our mind is everywhere. It's not used to just focusing on one thing, one person at one time. So it can negatively affect our cognitive function in every way, (laughs) not just while we're working. Yeah, this was a surprise. So the scientists who studied one, there's two wrinkles here um, that affect what you just said. One is that the more you try to multitask, the worse you, you get at doing more than one thing at once or focusing in. This surprised the scientists who expected to find that those who were the most practiced at this were going to be better at switching their focus very quickly. It's the opposite. They are worse at it. Um, The other thing which you also alluded to is the fact that trying to multitask is extremely demanding and it causes a lot of anxiety and weariness in your brain. Your brain can't do it. And so it's trying to carry out your orders and it's just failing all over the place. And so it raises your cortisol level, your stress hormone. It raises your heart rate. It puts you in this state of crisis constantly. And so you have spent the entire day in this very stressful frame of mind. And then when you get home, of course you're exhausted. Of course you can't, you don't have the patience and the temperament to deal with whatever's happening at home. Of course, you're going to snap at people. Of course, your friend is going to call and you're going to reject that phone call and send them a text that say, what's up, (laughs) right? Uh Because you don't have the energy. You have been stressed out and exhausted all day long. So yeah, the multitasking on a number of different levels, it just needs to stop. We have to stop. We have to close out. You know, I'll go by people's desks and I'll see like a hundred tabs open. And I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah. That would make Lauren go crazy. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm a one tab person. (laughs) So, so speaking of this, so can you describe the moment that you were introduced to the slow movement or the, the point where you realize I can't do this anymore and how you started to incorporate slow living into your work life? Um, so part of it was when I was writing a book. So I had told myself my whole life I was never writing a book. And people would ask me, are you going to write a book someday? And I'd be like, no, I am not. And writing a book was a completely new, you know, look, I'm a broadcast journalist. So I've spent 25 years writing five minute pieces. <laughs> That's what I have spent. And I've gotten really good at it. And so writing a, a 70,000 word book I could not, I couldn't, I simply could not meet my deadline without changing my habits. I had to be able to focus. And so it was experimentation for me. It's like how this isn't working. This isn't working. Maybe I'll turn on classical music. Nope. So I, I was, it was trial and error. And because it wasn't working for me, I would, I would go back to the best research I could find on how do we reach deep focus. And over the course of that research, that's how I came upon the slow movement because the slow movement isn't necessarily about focus, but it, it really is, right? Like it started with cooking um, and I think that then it moved into fashion. Um, but if you think about cooking, cooking requires you to go slowly, right? You're gonna cut your finger if you are going too fast while you're dicing onions. Cooking requires that if you're going to do it well, you slow down. We all have screwed up in the kitchen. Everyone has screwed up in the kitchen because they missed a step. 
because they forgot to put in an ingredient because they accidentally put in salt instead of sugar <laughs> or baking soda or whatever everyone has and so we have learned the hard way that when you speed up you're going to grab that pan in the oven and forget that you don't have a hot pad on your hands or whatever it may be Cook cooking is such a good reminder of why you have to go slowly that when I started reading about the slow movement, I was like, well, this is it. Like, this is why I can't focus is because I'm, I'm, I have this deadline in front of me and I've, I've done the right thing according to 21st century productivity, right? I've, I'm like, okay, here's how many words I have to write and here's how long I have to write it. And that means I have to have write this many words every day and blah, 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 blah. Really it's about each step. It's here's, you, you're going to whip the cream until it's ready. There's no set amount of time you can whip cream, you you whip the cream until it's fluffy, <laughs> right? And it's the same thing with a book, like you have to slow down and watch what you're doing. You finish a chapter when the chapter's done. There's no exterior um, measure that can tell you when you're done writing that chapter. And so that's how the slow movement sort of really captured me. And it, it just made it made so much sense. And especially when it comes to like climate change and you start reading about slow fashion, right? And uh, slow transportation. Slow is so much closer to the real rhythm of the earth. And we are part of that, right? We have artificially tried to speed up, but we're not computers. Like we can't break our, our lives down to a nanosecond. We need to be in rhythm with the seasons and the rising of the sun. And that means we have to slow down just, just a little. And arguably I've heard that if you are too busy and living a really, really fast paced life, it means that you are not prioritizing well. <laughs> so people can see it that way. And so, well, you, we all have the same number of hours in a day. And we always think that again, as you said in your book, we're obsessed with time. We feel like there's not enough time. And if, you know, someone has enough time, then what are they doing? you know, what are they doing with their life? It's like, no, yeah, that's exactly. actually, a, yeah. that's actually a good thing. And it makes your work better. I'm sure you can all relate to this idea of having three tasks on your plate and realizing, okay, what's the most important. So you focus on that. And then you think, okay, well, maybe I can get it done tonight. Even though I don't need to get it done tonight, I could do it tomorrow. And then you realize, oh yeah, I should do it tomorrow because I'll be more efficient and my head will be in the right place and it's worth it. And so in your book, you talk about how you cut down the number of hours you work a week and you said that your focus in your productivity rose. And so that's fascinating to me. Could you go into that and explain? Yeah. It's so funny because interviewers always think they're asking me a gotcha question because <laughs> they're like, <laughs> you wrote this whole book about doing nothing and I'm looking over your resume and you've done a ton of things. I'm like, yeah, but here's the thing. <laughs> I screw off every day like i do absolutely nothing i make ugly baking products because i like to bake and i don't make pretty food i have ridiculous number of houseplants like a really an extreme like excessive number of houseplants that have no serve no purpose they will never be on instagram you know i sit and watch the birds at the bird feeder every morning and because i do that i'm in a more relaxed frame of mind. So when I sit down to work, I'm ready. My mind is fresh. I'm not pushing myself. I freaking hate that phrase rise and grind. Oh my God, it needs to die in a pit of flames. 
but they always think it's that this gotcha question but the truth is is that when you actually allow yourself to embrace well-being and what that looks like for you you're more productive because your time spent working is actually producing something not just checking off a list but getting something done and at a high level you know when i sit down to work i know exactly how much and i'm very aware of my brain when i get to the point where i'm starting to get distracted i know it's time to get up i'm not going to force my brain to try to focus because it's literally counterproductive and i i know that sounds like you know you know the studies that come out and say drink more wine and eat more chocolate it's good for you like you're always like there's a catch like this isn't real um i know that's what it sounds like but it's totally true <laughs> you know you have to understand you have to know yourself well enough that you know what well-being looks like and then you have to find ways to maintain that well-being it's not going to look the same for everybody mm-hmm. it's just not mm-hmm. you know for me i get up early that doesn't mean that somebody else needs to get up early in order to have well-being that's why i hate those lists that say the nine things successful people do and then everybody tries to emulate those nine things that may not work for you doing someone else's list is probably not going to work for you you're a different person and that's how you will eventually become more productive that can't be your goal your goal has to be your own well-being but the byproduct is you will get more done and What's interesting is that actual ability to focus, like you were talking about, is not that long of a span. Like I look at people who work 12 or 14 hour days, like my boyfriend will leave at like 8 a.m. and come back at midnight. And I'm like, did you work that whole time? You said in your book, some of the greatest minds in history is like uh, or history, Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens. They only worked a portion of the day. Like they weren't working like four all hours. day. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, like some of the most productive people of all time, Henri Poincaré, who mo- a lot of people don't know, but was ridiculously productive. Um, there's a great book called Rest uh, by Alex Pang, and he actually went through people's days and and measured this out. And he has a massive list of people who worked somewhere between three to five hours a day. But realistically, and you say this in your book too, people, it's so like the two worlds coming together, like maybe we're at work, but we're booking dentist appointments or so like, maybe we actually are just working that much. We just stay at the office that long because, you know, you said that work is measured in time, not quality. Yeah. But it's really unfortunate because, um, another thing I cite in there is they did a survey of thousands of employees and well over 90% of them said they never engage in deep work while they're at their job. And it's part of what you're talking about. We are required to sit at our desks. Our, our, our bosses will reward us for having our butts in those seats longer. And so of course we have to do our shopping while we're at work. When else are we gonna do it? So it all gets messed up and we're multitasking and we're buying a flight for, for to, to go on vacation at the same time that we're on a conference call, which means we're not paying attention to either one, which means we're not actually getting stuff done. And then you get to the end of your day and someone says, hey, do you have that memo written? And you're like, no, <laughs> I don't. If we would just do one thing at a time and we would stop measuring people's days according to how many hours they were there, but whether they got their job done, 
we would be fin you know i i am have been an executive producer at various times in my life and i would have to force my mostly millennial staff to leave i would literally have to go out there and i would say i'm your boss and i'm telling you get up and leave that's how ingrained this idea is that you're a good worker if you're working for longer and I would say to them, look, you're not helping yourself. If your job is so taxing that it takes you 12 hours a day, um, then I need to know that. I don't want you to cover for it. I need the, I need it to fail so I can say, look, this is too much of a job for one person. I don't want you to hurt yourself getting what something done that can't be done by one person. So get up and, and leave, <laughs> please. And this is kind of like, I kind of wish that I could, I could be that person for the entire country, right? I need to be used to imagine Celeste standing over your shoulder going, get up now, <laughs> get up. You're not focusing anymore. You need to stand up, go take a walk. That is great. I mean, one of the reasons why I left the corporate world and became an independent contractor is for that reason. I, I didn't love the idea of being measured by how many hours I was in the office. I actually didn't get my best work done in the office ever. I would bring it home most of the times and I would get my deep work done at home. Now that everything's at home, I find that I'm much more productive. And, and now that I manage my own projects, it's, it's all about, it's the measuring stick is around the completion of the project versus the number of hours that I'm working, so to speak. And, but the problem with, I think our workforce today is that we're, they, the workforce says, Hey, if you work more, then you can make more. And so we're like, okay, the more I work, then I'm just going to make more money, which will ultimately make me happy. And it's, it's all a lie. <laughs> it is. It's all a lie. People who work excessive hours and I think this is in the book, only make on average like six or 7% more. And not only that, but the WHO just came out with groundbreaking research, which was came, you know, I, I didn't include in the book because it just came out showing they, they link as a cause, not correlation, but as a cause overwork to early death. Mm -hmm. Literally working too many hours will kill you <laughs> and so and then they list you know as an it was a massive massive study um and they list all the reasons for it so not only a not only are you not going to make more money you're just not on average um not only is it not going to make you happier there's ridiculous sheaves and sheaves of, of research studies showing it will actually make you miserable but it will your your life will be shorter i mean when we talk about end goals is that what we want we want a shorter life does anybody want that yeah so it's it's it you're right it is 100 percent a lie and it it is a it is an intentional lie this is one of the things that i tried to track in the book was the fact that this is not some accident we didn't as a as a species decide for ourselves that we wanted to work ridiculous amounts of hours we have been manipulated and coerced and forced into being this way and it's going to take nothing short of a revolution to change the system, which means we as a as a generation need to say, no, we're not killing ourselves so that you can have someone's butt in your seat. It's not helping you and it's definitely not helping me. So no, <laughs> that's what has to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and we also have these tools that are saying, Hey, if you use me, you'll be more productive. And unfortunately we still have less time than our ancestors. So clearly 
uh, it's not helping us, but you do argue in your book that we have the ability to ha- take a sort of control over our devices. And I liked that because it's all about using these tools with intention. I think a lot of the time we can have all these productivity tools, but then they actually take away our focus, but it's how we use them. And I think you also took a month detox away from your technologies to see if they were the factor. Can you share this, this experience and maybe uh, share some advice for those who are addicted to their phones? Yeah, I literally um, became a Luddite. I have a, a light phone, which is, you know, it can't text, it can't, you know, access the internet. It's just a phone that calls and texts. I got rid of my smartphone. I put everything away, no laptop, no tablet, took off my smart smartwatch. And I just went essentially, except for what, you know, the work I had to do on the computer to actually support myself. Other than that, I went tech free and it, it didn't solve it. Um, I, it helped a little bit. I mean, anytime you step away from social media, you're going to feel better but it didn't solve it. And that was sort of an aha moment for me because I went into this whole project of not, I wasn't intending to write a book. I was trying to solve my own problem. I went into it thinking I was going to find out that tech was the problem and it, it wasn't. And that's, that was the moment at which I was like, "Uh Oh, I better keep peeling this onion because if tech isn't the problem, then what, what's happening. And that's what led to all that research of going back and back and back through time to figure out where this all started. But, you know, and, and again, you're right. We can take assertive control in a limited way. Like we, we can't completely change society. We can't change capitalism as an individual. We can as a generation, but there are things we can do. And this comes up all the time. I mean, it's not just your your devices, like stop using your phone as an alarm clock, leave your phone outside your room when you sleep. It has no place in your bedroom. Stop taking your phone with you in the bathroom, right? Like only check your email once or twice an hour. Um, And people get absolutely flabbergasted when I say that. And I'm like, how? look, research shows that you almost never get an email that has to be responded to even within two hours. Almost nobody gets truly urgent emails. So you don't have to check it. Everyone thinks they're exception. No, I get, I get, you know, important emails. No, you don't. (laughs) You're not an ER surgeon. I'm a journalist. If there's breaking news, they call me. They don't send me an email. So you can stop doing this. And there's these little small steps that you can take. Um, Even somebody who's working hourly, who doesn't really have control, you know, when when how many hours you work literally controls how much pay you get. Even that person, I say, you do have five minutes and you can set your phone down and go take a walk for five minutes. Like if you don't even have five or 10 minutes, then there's a real problem. Like your problems are deeper than this, but you probably have five minutes. So do the five minutes. Really great advice. And one of the studies that was so interesting in the book too, was the Kane study. He kind of looked at the future of work and was like, look, we're making all these technological advances with email and everything else. And he's like, we're not going to have to work that much in the future. But the complete opposite happened and consumerism kicked in. And the more money we were able to make, the more we spent. And it was such an interesting study that how wrong he was. And he wasn't wrong because his math was off. Yeah. Right. His math was absolutely correct. But he, what he didn't um, 
what you can't account for, what you can't add up is these cultural forces. And, and also, again, it's intentional. We have been manipulated to believe by our religion that idle hands of the devil works, devil's work that you that you know if you are not working you are not a virtuous person we've been um manipulated by our country because hard workers are patriotic hard workers and and good americans work hard enough that they can buy a ford and buy american products and and if you and you know after after 9 11 george bush was like go out there and take a vacation at, at at disneyland this is how you support the country go to disneyland buy american right that's how you become patriotic and then of course capitalism was like look hard workers you you know we've given you this job look how kind we are we're giving you pay every two weeks and you know you have to be part of this this company and then they go even further and say we're a family right this isn't even just where you just earn your work we're all a family here which is 100% grade a bullshit and so yeah, he couldn't account for that. We should be working only two or three days a week. That's where, what the math says. Even the Senate committee thought that that's where we would be at this point. So we, we really have to ask ourselves why we're not. Why are we still working 40 hours a week? Actually, more than 40 hours a week. Why are Americans not taking their vacation time? I mean, how shocking is that? We're donating billions of dollars to our employers, donating it by choosing not to take our vacation time, right? Like that's not about tech. That's not something that an economist could have predicted that we would, that some people would have paid vacation and be like, no, I don't, I don't have time to take paid vacation time. So we, we have some tough questions to ask ourselves. My sister just said that to me yesterday. I don't have time to take vacation. She goes, I get paid so much, but, but I don't have time to take vacation. I said, well, Jamie, what's your number? What's the number that will make you happy so that you can have a more balanced life. And she, like, I, I, we were talking about maybe take a step down because you will be happier. One of the, sorry, I, lo what's I love the your point? What's the, Yeah. Because <laughs> what's the point of making more money? Yeah. Like that's yeah. not the end goal. So what's the point of the more money? Isn't it to make her life better? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and she's unhappy. So, so we had this talk and it was, yeah. she, she kind of almost had a aha epiphany moment. And I, I was Good happy. You, Kelly. Yeah. Well, I was happy <laughs> that we chatted about it because it, it, it's important. It's her every day. It's her life. It's her happiness. And in, in your book, one of the biggest pieces I took away is that we have lost sight of play today. We aren't, even if we have unlimited vacations in the company that we work for, we don't take them. And when we do take le leisure time, we try to fill it with busyness. Yeah. For example, when, you know, I would say in the past, arguably even myself, when I'm on vacation, I love to take hundreds of pictures. And then in the moment you're not present because you're taking those pictures. So unfortunately because we're not being present in those moments, there are consequences. So I'm hoping that you can share that with our listeners. Yeah, it, that was one of the most interesting things. Um, you know, there's a whole chapter on evolutionary biology and psychology. And the point of that was to try to figure out, you know, what is what do human beings actually need? And the, the, the main thing I wanted to find out is, is work a need? Do we need work in order to be happy and healthy? Um, 
TLDR, um, work doesn't turn out to be a need for human beings, which we all know perfectly well. If I gave you $500 million tomorrow, you would be perfectly fine. (laughs) (laughs) But then over the course of that, figuring out what do humans actually need, all human beings, I'm not talking about Americans or, or, or Asians or Africans, what do, does our species need to be happy and healthy? And play is one of those needs. We need it. And so this was for me another epiphany moment. I had so many over the course of researching for this book, but I was like, you know, I make plenty of time in my schedule. I make sure that I have like business development and training and I do my Harvard Business School course to add to my resume and blah, 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 blah. Where have I scheduled in play, right? This is an inherent need for me as a a human being. Where is it? And I have completely turned around on that. Like I have a TV club with my neighbors every weekend. We do board games. Uh (laughs) You know, I have completely changed that. But the other part was that um, I'm making sure that I take my vacation time. And as a self-employed person, that means blocking the days out on my calendar. And when you do that, you're going to have someone coming on and going, the only time they can do this is there any time you have blocked out on your calendar. And you have to get used to the time that you used to saying, I'm on vacation. I can't. So it's not happening, mm-hmm. right? Um, or uh, just recently, you you have to make these rules for yourself and then keep them no matter what. And when it comes to vacation time, I had a speaking opportunity come up and they, they said, we're, we're desperate. Somebody canceled. We need a speaker. It's this amount of money. It was a lot of money. Um, I said, no, I'm not doing that. That's during my vacation. They said, okay, well, then let's offer you more money. And I had to be like... I'm not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And I did, I turned it down. But in the end, that's going to help me because does that one speaking gig get me closer to my end goal of being happier and healthier and having well-being? No, but having regular vacation time and just like, you know, I'm taking a road trip with my best friend, right? Like it's, we will not be taking photos. We're going to be in sweatpants and looking terrible. Um, but like, that's playful. That's joy. And that's worth investing in. Mm-hmm. I know someone in Toronto who actually runs a company called Fundamentals of Play. He goes into different corporate offices to help employees engage with each other and think outside of the box and take a break from the work that they're doing. It's, it's amazing work that he's doing. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we've gotten here though. I mean, in your book, you, you talk about how playgrounds are empty memberships are going down for community clubs and it's making me realize, wow. So we're not even taking time for play that way. We're stuck to our phones in many ways. And something that you said in your book that just made me laugh out loud. I was reading while I was on a plane. Uh You said that Netflix biggest competition is sleep. (laughs) It's like, that's what their CEO said. Yeah. Yeah. And then also like, there's a a house being built up the street from me. It's a, just a monstrosity. Um, it's massive. It's in a neighborhood. My house was, this whole neighborhood is all these little, they look like brick Lego blocks. You know, they were, it's one of those post World War II things where they just, you know, and they're building this massive, like 3000 square foot house on this lot, which means there's maybe five or six foot of clearance on every side of the house in the lot, right? Means there's no yard. I mean, think about this for a second. 
These are people who are planning to be in their house all the time. There's no pla place for playing with their dog. There's no place for playing cats. There's no place for a barbecue pit. All their house is is this massive indoor area and a giant two-car garage. Mm. And if you look at the statistics, the, the ratio of lot size to house has been shifting so that as our houses get bigger and our outdoor space shrinks. And that's a huge indicator of our priorities. So yeah, we, as a society, our priorities are like, let us stay inside our little curated, comfortable boxes where everything is exactly the way we want it to be. And if I hate somebody on, on Twitter, I can log off or I can tell them to, you know, suck an egg um, or say whatever <laughs> I want, right? Like the, I wanted to have it everything the way that I want it. And again, we think that will make us happier and it doesn't, it just doesn't. We're just that we don't interrogate our habits. We are like the surface level. We're like, in some cases, like toddlers. You know, toddlers are, are everything is impulse. Um, I don't know if either of you have kids, but everything is impulse. You know, they that's how they get brain freeze all the time because they see the ice cream and they shove it in their mouths, right? <laughs> As adults, we're supposed to be a little bit more deliberative than that. We're supposed to ask, is this actually making me happy? How do I feel after spending 90 minutes on Facebook? We're, we're just not asking ourselves those questions. We're shoving the ice cream in our mouths. Yeah, that's what I loved about your book. It, it forced you to be reflective of your life. Like the more you work, like I, even in real estate, it's like, okay, I'll work more and more. It's like, but what do you want? What are you going to buy? That's going to do it for you. Um, and that's when I, you know, Kelly and I started podcasting. We've been podcasting for four years and I got a comedy writing coach and I just started doing things that were more creative. And there are times I sit down, I was telling Kelly and I'm anxious writing comedy because I'm like, I should be working, but I'm like, no, like I, I want to do this. Like I, this is like, what's meaningful to my life. Like when I'm on my deathbed, I want to look back and be like, look at the funny stuff I wrote and put out into the world. Not like, look at the 500 homes I sold or, you know, it's like, it's, it's so hard to step back into like question what you're doing with that time. And the, the irony of it all is that when you actually do go into work, you are happier and you're well-rested and you do so much better of a job and which benefits us all as a society. If you're going in for heart surgery, wouldn't you want your surgeon to be well-rested or do you want him like just come off a 14 hour shift and stress? Like it's, it, it does benefit us all as a society, but it's so hard to step out of it because it we're all so caught up in this vicious cycle of competing and buying stuff and working harder and getting ahead. It's hard to step back and be like, with your book, when I saw it, do nothing. I'm like, I have to read this. Like I have to find out what this is about because this goes against everything that we've been told as a culture, which you is know, do everything. <laughs> uh, it makes me so happy to hear you say that. I mean, I got to say there's a real generational divide in who appreciate likes this book and who doesn't. I got to say, I just did an interview with a guy who is a boomer and he was very skeptical and he was like, I hate that title. Um, do you mean do nothing? Like literally you want people to just sit and do nothing and then society would fall apart and then there would be nothing, nobody would do anything. We would all just die. And I was like, I feel like it's kind of obvious. I don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you know the word rhetorical, but like, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. And I, this is not an indictment of the baby boomer generation. I mean, I think they were very much 
not just indoctrinated in these beliefs, but also an engine of those beliefs. They've driven a lot of those beliefs and hard work and labor for a very long time. But I love the fact that millennials and Gen Z are like, mm, I don't think so. I'm not sure this is right. I uh, <laughs> There is a lot more willingness to question the norms rather than say, this is the way this has been done. And that's super healthy. And sometimes when you question it and say, wait, is this still serving me? The answer will be yes. Sometimes it'll be yes. Yeah. But sometimes the answer will be no. And and I, I really like the fact that younger people, is, it gives me hope that younger people are like, you know what? I'm not happy. And I want to, I'm going to figure out why, you know, it's, I, my Ted talk 10 ways to have a better conversation. Um, I was really, really heartened by the fact that it was a huge number of young people found them their way to that Ted talk, because what it meant was that a, a large number of young people who are supposedly addicted to their phones and supposedly don't know how to have friendships or talk to one another. We're going to, we're obviously recognizing that was something was wrong with our conversation is like, I, I want to figure out what's wrong and I'm going to want to fix it. And that's hopeful to me. Like there's that, that Ted talk is, I think it's getting close to 30 million views. That means that has been the subject of people's Google searches that they were like, how do I improve my conversation? And a lot of those people are young people. And so I actually am super heartened and hopeful to hear you guys say this, but also the, the huge number, like there was one um, young woman on TikTok and it went super viral with a, with, she did this summary, like a two part, very short, quick summary of the whole book. Right. And oh. it went super viral. And I was like, this makes me so happy. Oh. <laughs> this makes me so Aww. happy. Not only that this young woman did this and was inspired and that maybe that's going to feed more research and more work in this area, but that other young people are finding that as well. And also saying, no, this is not for me. I choose joy. Yep. Yep. And, and I want to also mention that when it comes to the title of your book, you mentioned that guy said, oh, well, you know, can't just do nothing. I'd argue that any millennial who sees that title just wants to run and dive in. Like, yeah. Wow. Please save me. Please explain. Please help me right now. I, I, I really do argue that. And, and it, you know, what? woven throughout your book, you basically remind us that purpose, our sense of purpose, our deepest sense of purpose is not related to work. Yeah. And you've also mentioned that people live longer when they have a sense of purpose. And so how can we begin to refocus our attention on being, as I said before, rather than doing? And, and why is it important? I, I would say that it's important because that's literally what we're designed to do. But it's also important because that is what makes people happy is is to focus on being present like this whole idea of being mindful and being present. I think that sadly that has for many people become a stepping stone that's become yet another point in their bullet journal. I don't mean to keep dissing on bullet journals. They're yeah. perfectly useful. But I, I think that sometimes we think of being mindful as a, some kind of productivity tool. You know, some one woman was telling me that she um, makes sure that she meditates because it makes her more productive. <laughs> <I was like, laughs> okay, so let's not do that. Um, it should not be a productivity tool. Like the whole purpose of this is that we have to be aware enough of our own bodies to know when we are in a state of anxiety and we know when we're in a state of relaxation. You know, the Italians 
which is where the slow movement began, by the way, get this in a way that other cultures often don't. There, in Italian, there's a phrase that's dolce far niente, which means the, the beauty, the sweetness of doing nothing. And it's about doing nothing in an engaged and interested way. There's also this, one of the things I absolutely love um, is in Italian, there's a there's a group of people that they label as, as umarel, uh, um, and they are, are like retired men who spend their time watching construction sites <laughs> or road work. <laughs> and it's like the stereotype is an older guy with his hands clasped behind his back, giving people unsolicited advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they absolutely lean into this. Like this is their hobby is to stand around watching road workers and telling them how they can do it better. Um, and it becomes like, you'll see they'll, sh if you ever look up that term, it's U-M-A-R-E-L-L. -L, I think it, it translates to little man. You'll see photos of all these older guys just standing around telling construction workers, you know, how they can do their jobs better. I freaking love that, right? Like the purpose there is not to tell construction workers how to do their jobs better right like that's not the purpose the purpose is that they're just having a good time watching and like being with other older retired guys and like making a joke out of it like they're just enjoying their time and i i wish everybody could find that hobby that is not instagrammable that is not it doesn't add to your brand that doesn't that you're never going to put it on your CV, but you just like doing it. Mm -hmm. it you're reminding me of the moment that Lauren and I, when we first started this podcast, we were sitting in the fields of Florence, Italy, and we both took a moment to just sit and read in the fields. And in that moment, I remember thinking, hmm, I'm, I don't have any worries or concerns. I'm just kind of sitting here doing this. I'm actually being rather than doing. But one of the consequences I think that happens when we tie our sense of purpose around our work is that if we lose a job or, you know, we, we feel like we're left with nothing. And that is, that is scary. And I think a lot of people attach their entire identity to their work. And that is not healthy because you are going to be so unhappy if you lose that job or something doesn't happen. And so we need to, we need to embrace being. So. Yeah, and I it makes me so empathetic for the current um, the people who might be retiring. I'm a ways away from it, but um, because there is a, a real problem, um, a mental health problem with current retirees. They were raised in an era in which your worth was measured by your hard work and your job title. Um, Americans are one of the only societies that one of the first questions, or even that it's considered not rude to say, "What do you do?" Like for a living. Like we're one of the only societies that does that. And so when the answer for a retiree is I'm retired, um, that carries all these mental health penalties for them. And so I have a huge amount of empathy for those who have been told by society that their job is their value. And so then what does that mean when you don't have the job anymore? Um, that's really difficult sometimes for people to let go of. and. And maybe we can all keep that in mind as we go about our jobs every day, that <laughs> um, to be on the watch for making that part of our I identity. You know, it's funny when people introduce me like for events or stuff and they're like, how do you want me to introduce you? And I'm like, as brief as possible, please. <laughs> keep it as brief as possible um, because it doesn't matter. Like nobody cares about my, the only person who cares about that title is me. Right. And I don't care. 
nobody who's in the audience is gonna like it's gonna change their view of me because I, you know, whatever. Um, it can be impressive, but I have to deliver the goods. Either I'm a good speaker or I'm not, right? That's what they're gonna remember in the end. And so I, I have really, really focused on not identifying with my job. And I, and I realize I'm speaking from a place of privilege. Absolutely, I understand that. But at the same time, even if you can't fully divorce yourself from that job title, you can take a piece of it. You can find a way to find your own identity. Who are you when you're not working? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's all over Europe. Like they never talk about work or what they, I know. whereas here it's like the first thing on the dating app title is what they do. And everyone's, <laughs> oh, how's work? What, what are you working on? It's so interesting. And you are an exceptional speaker. You're so well-spoken. Oh, I've been thanks. thinking about that, that, the whole podcast. And, you know, I just want to give people like actionable steps. So like if they are, you know, they feel stressed, they feel overworked, they don't know how to step back. And if you're working in an office and you, you have to stay there till a certain time, like what are you able to do? Like, should you speak to your boss? Should you try to work from home more? How can you be more focused or step back or, or reflect on this? So the first step before you do anything else is you have to know where your time is going. The fact of the matter is, is that the vast majority of people have more time than they think. And unfortunately, when you are, you are coming from a place of time deficiency, when you think you don't have enough time, it has a whole lot of negative ramifications. So you have more time than you realize. So you have to start with that first step in the book, which is keeping your time diary it doesn't matter what notebook you have just find a piece of papers separate them into half hour spans over the course of the day and every hour or so go back and fill it in what have you done and be brutally honest if you spent 40 minutes looking at boots online write that down nobody's going to see it but you it doesn't matter but it's not it, the the value of this exercise is dependent on how honest you are so you have to figure out where your time is going. Like for me, it was absolutely revelatory when I realized that I was spending like three and a half hours a day on social media. And then when I realized how much free out time I had per day, which was only like maybe at the most five or six hours on a work day. And I was spending over half of that on social media. Like that's why I thought I didn't have any time because I was blowing it. I mean, and these are things, this is a step that you can take that's divorced from your work because you don't always have complete autonomy at work. Yeah. Um, the work conversation is a separate conversation, right? Um, so that first step is really, really important to, to figure out where your time is going and make decisions for yourself. I'm not saying stop using social media. I'm saying if you only have five hours free per day, how much of that time do you want to spend on social media? Mm -hmm. what, what do you want to spend your time on? Mm -hmm. That's step number one. If you are at work and you're working too many hours, the, the easiest way to get someone to be um, constructive and positive in a discussion of this kind is to engage them in collaborative problem solving. And by that, I mean, if you go into your boss and say, hey, I'm having an issue and I hope I want to get your advice. I'm hoping you can help me out with this. This is how many I've, I've kept track. This is how many hours I've worked. This is the issues that it's causing. Here's my idea on how I could fix this. What do you think? Right? 
um, engage the, your manager and as opposed to saying, this is awful, I'm working too hard, you don't pay me enough, I quit, or whatever it may be, you have to fix this. It's, you are much, A, you're, you might get some good ideas from your boss. Um, B, you're giving your boss really helpful information because you're coming with data. You're saying, these are the hours that I've worked every day. And you're also asking for their advice, which everybody likes. So you're way more likely to be successful in that particular case if you approach it that way than as opposed to just saying, here's my demands, this is unacceptable, I'm not tolerating it, you're sucky, I hate this. <laughs> That's a great, yeah, this Very is really true. good advice, good approach. This is awesome. Well, thank you so much for today. We, I can speak for both of us when I say we felt very connected with you in this conversation, such an important message. And uh, I love, I love your energy. It's amazing. And, you know, to, to close our conversation, I have one last question for you. Uh, so you really highlight in the book, the idea of idleness and how it actually allows us to recharge it's idleness is not laziness. And so to close, can you share a few words with our listeners to help them break free of our obsession with productivity so that they can embrace time for leisure? Yeah, sometimes we have this manic activity um, and we feel like we should be doing something constantly and that is what we're aiming for. When you have to remember that sometimes people are working while they're idle. We have to divorce the idea of leisure from inactivity. So a fisherman is often idle while they are working. A security guard is often idle while they're working. It's not whether you're standing up and moving around, it's whether you are engaged in trying to produce work. So if you're outside gardening, you're not inactive, but you're idle. Your brain is idle. You're letting it wander. You're you're doing something and you're and you're enjoying it, but you're not there's no deadlines, there's no metrics hopefully, I, I really hope you're not keeping metrics on your garden. <laughs> um, so when I talk about idleness, I don't mean sit on the couch and, and watch Netflix. You can absolutely remain engaged. I mean, I walk my dog twice a day, 45 minutes each. So like 90 minutes a day, four or five miles a day. I'm not inactive, but I'm idle. Mm. My brain is idle. Mm. And, and that is what keeps me creative some of my best ideas i mean you guys must have experienced this sometimes your best ideas come from me come to you when you're like not thinking productively you're in the shower and you're like oh or right before you fall asleep right that moment when your brain is beginning to sort of phase out and get fuzzy that can be some of your most creative time so don't think of it in terms of activity just think of it in terms of letting go of productivity Love it. Beautifully love it. said. Beautifully said. It's so true. You're in the shower. Everything rises. <laughs> Everything comes out. I don't know why that happens, but thank you again, Celeste. Where can our listeners find you? Um, the easiest way is I have a website. It's just celesteheadley.com. The only social media I'm truly engaged on is Twitter. Uh, we'll see if that remains the same in the Musk era. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then I, on Instagram, I put posts, pictures of trees and dogs. Um, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> well, that's what we like to follow. We like to follow, we like to follow people who are just, you know, living, sorry, a being rather than doing right. right. And just calming, calming posts. We don't, we don't need more anxiety. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you right. so much. And if you ever come to Canada, definitely send us a line. We would love right. to meet you in person one day.
thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And good luck. Continue doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you so much. This is amazing. All right. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. That was our conversation with the amazing Celeste Headley. And if you'd like to learn more about Celeste and the work that she does, please check out the links in our show notes. We had an absolute blast speaking with Celeste. It is such an important message for us to really step away and start to focus on doing things a little bit slower because at the end of the day, We'll be more efficient and we'll be happier. Such a fascinating conversation. We hope that you took away as much as we did. We had, again, an absolute blast and we love doing what we do and it's all thanks to you. We're so happy to have guests like Celeste on board and it's thanks to your reviews, your likes, and everything you do to share our podcast with others in your network. So thanks again for listening, everyone, and we'll speak with you soon. Bye-bye.